Okay. So there is something that we are supposed to do according to the wisdom of Proverbs 4, and that is to guard our hearts, um, meaning we need to take care of our inner person, and it says above all else. Um, another version, the NES says diligently, with all diligence, we need to do this. So I was thinking about things that we do during our day, and you can come up with a list, but above all of those things, we need to make sure we're taking care of our inner person. So I was thinking above making my kids lunches, above changing diapers, above uh, watching my favorite show, above uh, fill in the blank. So some of those things are fun, some of those things are responsibilities that we actually really have to do. I mean, we can't send our kids to school without lunches and we can't leave babies in dirty diapers. So it doesn't mean obviously that um, before I, I can change this diaper in the morning, I need to make sure I'm spending time in God's word. It just means the most important thing about our whole day, about our pursuit of our life, is that we are taking care of our inner person and guiding ourselves to truth, guiding ourselves to God himself. So uh, that's Proverbs 4.23. Would someone read the purpose of Wellspring? All right, thank you, Tanya. To equip and encourage the women of Grace Bible Church to shepherd their hearts towards Jesus Christ with the word of God, so that they will live gospel-transformed lives, thus strengthening the church in its gospel purpose. Thank you. So the elders of our church have put this ministry together years ago um, for the purpose of teaching and equipping the women how to shepherd their hearts toward God. And I was thinking about our chart when I was thinking about shepherding our hearts. Sarah's going to talk more about that, and you're going to hear about it all year, shepherding our hearts. Um, but I was thinking about this little section, the center one, the regenerate man, and how we have not only the responsibility to shepherd our hearts, but the privilege. Um, and I just love in this section, it talks about how we are not, or we are able not to sin, finally, in this stage. And one of the character qualities of living in this mixed condition where we are we still have flesh, and uh, we are tempted by sin. We still live in the presence of sin, but we have been set free from its power. So we're in this mixed condition. One of the characteristics um, for this mixed condition is progress in Christ-likeness. It's the last one in that section. And 2 Corinthians 3.18 and 2 Corinthians 4.16 are listed. And I will just kind of summarize those verses for you, but it's the verse that talks about how if we are looking into God's word, where we're um, beholding the glory of the Lord in his word, we're going to be transformed from one degree of glory to another. And then the second Corinthians four is about our outer persons wasting away, but our inner persons being renewed day by day. So you kind of see a passive part of that. And then you see an active part where we are in God's word, we're beholding him and we're being changed. And then there's this passive part where the Holy Spirit is just working in us and is renewing us. And I'm so thankful for that. It's not just on our shoulders. We have responsibility and a privilege to do that, but God is the one at work in us as we shepherd our hearts. All right, would someone read Discipline 1? Don't make eye contact. Okay, Sarah, thank you. Okay, so I think it would actually be fun to hear how everyone's been shepherding their hearts. I mean, that's kind of what we do in small group. We get to hear how we're 
shepherding our hearts with God's word specifically, but I'm up here, so I'm going to share something with you guys. If you wouldn't mind looking at Nehemiah 9. Oh, sorry. I'd love to share with you something from like maybe, I think it was two weeks ago I was in this, and I was really encouraged. Um, Initially, I was encouraged just because I was seeing just characteristics of God, seeing his, yeah, character qualities, also seeing what he had done with Israel. And I think, too, because we've been talking about Daniel um, on Sunday nights, thinking about the captivity and how God had sent them away um, to discipline them. And this is when they're coming back. Nehemiah came back with other people. Ezra had come back before him. They had rebuilt the temple. They put up walls so Jerusalem was safe. And they're confessing their sin. So the other part of this that was so neat is this is, um, it's a group of Levites, so I don't know exactly who said what I'm going to read to you, um, but it looks like the leaders, the religious leaders, um, were confessing sin and also just recalling God's character. And I was thinking, how neat that I'm in Nehemiah 9, seeing how other people thousands of years ago shepherded their own hearts and the other people in Israel, um, and I'm getting to see character qualities. I mean, I wouldn't probably normally end up in Nehemiah 9 if I wasn't doing a reading plan. Um, but so starting in verse five, um, this is what the Levites said publicly. They all were gathered together at the temple. They said, arise, bless the Lord, your God forever and ever. Oh, may your glorious name be blessed and exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You have made the heavens, the heaven of heavens with all their host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to all of them. And the heavenly host bows down before you. And then he talks about Moses and giving the law. And then he talks about, in verse 9, You saw the afflictions of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry by the Red Sea. And then kind of goes through being in the wilderness. Um, Moving down to verse 17, he talks about how um, God had given them commandments. They refused to listen. They did not remember your wondrous deeds, which you had performed among them. So they became stubborn. And then, um, but you are a God of forgiveness, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness, and you did not forsake them. And then down in verse 26, he talked about how these people are reminding the Israelites, um, our nation became disobedient, rebelled against you, cast your law behind their backs and killed your prophets who had admonished them so that they might return to you. They're remembering God sent us prophets so that we would turn back to him, um, but our fathers killed them. And then in verse 31, nevertheless, in your great compassion, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and compassionate God. And then in verse 33, you are just in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, but we have acted wickedly. It was just such an encouraging passage to see this long prayer full of truth, full of history, just remembering what God had done for them um, and seeing God's character, his mercy that continued to take care of them no matter what they were doing. I talked about the calf in there and God was still compassionate to them. Okay, so that's just an example of, um, I guess, just shepherding our hearts. And I just wanted to share one way that God had encouraged me um, in the last couple of weeks by coming to his word. Um, could someone read Discipline 2? Thank you, Diane. The people of God is concerned for those in her home and ministers to them with her heart fixed on God and Okay, and then Discipline 3. We're going to combine these two. Anyone else? 
Thanks, Julie. Okay, so Sarah is going to be teaching on um, really, I guess both of them, I would say, yeah, combined, right? Is it mostly two, would you say? I just don't think you can separate them. Yes, okay, <laughs> so we're not going to separate them, but um, the focus is probably going to be around two, discipline two and three, and when she has taught this lesson in the past, I think I've only done this on Saturday mornings where I've read this last chapter from Feminine Appeal. It's a story, it's it's a real story, it's a, basically a biography, but it's really, really short, and it's just really encouraging. I feel like it illustrates Titus 2 really well. So I'm reading this to you just to be encouraged. Um, we're all different people, and so this woman's different than, and unique to any of us, but I think she was faithful, and it's just, every time I read it, I'm just given courage to be faithful with what God has given me to do in different seasons of life. So I'll read this. This is um, Carolyn Mahaney's book on Titus 2. It's called Feminine Appeal, and this is Margaret's story. I want to tell you about, <clears throat> sorry, a woman named Margaret. Most likely you've never heard of her. She is not a champion of women's rights, a glamorous actress, or a recording artist. She isn't a successful businesswoman or politician. She's never authored a book or traveled the lecture circuit. She hasn't won any humanitarian awards or received academic honors. In fact, she never even went to college. Margaret is simply a faithful wife and mother. She has been married to her husband for almost 60 years. Together they raised five children, all of whom have families of their own now. Homemaking has been her sole career and she poured her life into this calling. A typical day for Margaret began before dawn. She fixed her husband's breakfast and packed his lunch for work. Then she woke her children and got them ready for school. The following hours were spent tackling an endless list of chores, laundry, ironing, mending, dusting the furniture, vacuuming the carpets, scrubbing the floors, cleaning the bathrooms, grocery shopping, errands, and cooking. By 5.30 p.m., she had dinner prepared for her family. Afterwards, there were dishes to wash, household tasks to complete, baths for the little ones, homework help for the older ones, and nighttime stories to read. When she finally crawled into bed, only a precious few hours were afforded for sleep. Then it was time to start the routine all over again. In this manner, <clears throat> Margaret tirelessly served her family day after day, month after month, and year after year. Now, if you had the honor of meeting Margaret, you would at once be impressed by her joy. But her vivacious, delightful character is most conspicuous in the arena of her home. She's always smiling or singing. She's excited by the simplest of pleasures. She loves to laugh, so hard the tears run down her cheeks. And all through the, through the years, she marshaled this joyful energy for the well-being of her family. Never once did her children hear her complain, and not until they had children of their own did they comprehend the sacrifices she had made, for all her sacrifices had been masked by her perpetual joy. Margaret's constant presence in the home provided comfort and security. Her children awoke each morning to the sound of her cheerful voice and returned home every afternoon to hear to her warm greeting. She was always available to hear about their day, call out steady questions for a test, make them a snack or bandage, scrape knees. At no time was her family an interruption. She would drop whatever she was doing to tend to their most pressing concerns without any mention of inconvenience. And if something was important or exciting to her husband or children, then it was of great interest to Margaret. Her life was intertwined with theirs. 
If they were happy, so was she. If they were suffering, so was she. No trial or joy was so small or insignificant as to escape her notice. Margaret's being there, not just physically, but with all her heart, left an indelible imprint upon the members of her family. Her lifelong service to her husband and children speaks most eloquently about her love for the Savior. God's love captured her heart as a teenager, and at the age of 23, she married a godly man. Together, they imparted their love for God to their children. They modeled righteous character and genuine faith in the home, and they expressed that faith by commitment to their local church, a church they helped found almost 50 years ago. As Margaret's children will tell you, whenever the church doors were open, their entire family was present. Margaret's gift of hospitality was an integral part of daily life in the church. Many a family enjoyed Sunday dinner at her home. As a hostess for numerous women's meetings at her house, she always prepared a vast array of refreshments. If a missionary family, guest speaker, or any visitor came into town, it was taken for granted that Margaret would host them. On one occasion, she even housed a choir. She would clean her small house, cook hearty meals, suggest outings for her guests, and even do their laundry. Along with her servanthood, her joyful demeanor made everyone feel at ease, so you can imagine why anyone visiting Margaret's home was eager to return again, and soon. She freely extended hospitality in spite of her limited resources. Her husband was a construction worker, and though he eventually became a superintendent, Margaret had to manage the entire household with a mere $40 per week. But their financial situation did not deter her from giving. She would consistently set aside a portion of her weekly allowance and slip a small gift to someone facing hard times. For whether financial or practical, Margaret was always tuned in to the needs of others. If someone in the church was ill, in the hospital, or maybe just lonely, Margaret would visit the person. When a baby was born or a family member died, there was Margaret with a meal. For years, she and her husband drove a disabled woman to and from the Sunday evening service. Her charity did not end <clears throat> when she reached retirement age. In her late 70s, she cared for a 90-year-old widow by taking her to the doctor or the grocery store or the hairdresser each week. Margaret was never enamored by popular or influential people. Rather, her heart was drawn like a magnet to anyone who was outcast, poor, or needy. Those who lived near Margaret were also the recipients of her good deeds. She called her neighborhood, my little mission field. Whenever a new family moved in, Margaret would take them a meal. She and her husband frequently appeared on their neighbor's doorsteps with fresh picked produce or homemade baked goods. Margaret also extended friendship to the women who lived around her. She supported and encouraged one young mom through 17 years of mothering. Now this woman counts Margaret as dear as her own mother. And Margaret's like a grandma to all the neighborhood kids who love to come to her house. She would listen to their tales, read them stories, and of course fix them a snack. One young boy in particular loved to hang out at Margaret's house. He followed her around, talking to her while she cleaned. He stopped by early each morning when he was walking his dog. He showed up at her door if he missed his bus and needed a ride to school. He even built a treehouse on Margaret's property and would try to coax her to come on up. So why, you might ask, would an active boy spend so much time with an elderly woman? Well, this child's mother was in prison, his father had deserted him, and he lived with his grandparents, who now had a second family to raise. Margaret's home was a place of refuge. No doubt her pleasant company and interest in his daily life provided much happiness and comfort for this lonely little boy. But recently, everything about Margaret's life has changed. Her husband suffered a stroke. She's 80 years old and unable to care for him on her own, so she's had to move far from her home, her church, and her neighborhood, and take her husband to live with their daughter. 
Her days are now occupied with caring for this man she vowed to love in sickness and in health all the days of her life. She feeds him, bathes him, and reads to him from the Bible. Though she did not anticipate this abrupt turn of events, and despite the new and varied challenges before her, Margaret continues to serve faithfully. But then, serving has been a <clears throat> way of life for Margaret, and it's her servant's heart that has profoundly affected all who know her. While the orbit of her life was never very wide, to her husband, five children, and 17 grandchildren, she means the world. Though she's lived in almost complete anonymity, her neighbors, young and old alike, will never forget her. She may not be extraordinarily gifted, but Margaret's fellow church members are eternally grateful for her sacrificial care. Margaret has served without fanfare, never seeking attention or accolades, but one day soon she will meet her maker. On that day she will receive her commendation from God. Although it's true by worldly standards that Margaret never accomplished anything great, in God's eyes she has achieved true, true greatness. Her life can be summed up by the words of our Lord, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Matthew 20. Margaret is my example of a Titus II woman. Margaret is also my mom, and it's to you, Mom, that I lovingly dedicate this book. So, I think it would be encouraging for you guys to hear. And we'll let Sarah come and give her as much time as possible to teach us this lesson. Well, good morning. It is such a blessing to be here with you all. Um, I want to just give a few... Um, words of explanation about your outline and your homework, and then we'll pray, and we'll jump into our lesson. So um, first of all, um, on your outline, throughout the lesson, I will we'll refer to other passages. And so uh, for the most part, I've just listed those in parentheses next to the section that they belong to, rather than trying to figure out how much space you need before and after in your outline. Um, and then in your homework, um, I recommend that before you answer, that you read through all of the looking back questions and all of the looking day by day questions because they build on one another and try to do this soon after the lesson. You might even be able to do this in your discussion group. Um, and that way you can be thinking about them and you can be praying and you can be asking the Lord to help you see how you need to apply these verses. Um, and on question one, where it says, to write down at least one area where you see opportunities for growth, be sure you explain that. Describe how you're gonna use something from the lesson to help you grow. These questions aren't designed just to be like short answer. Um, and that goes for all the questions. Don't just jot a word, but really take the time to explain and to process how these verses can bear fruit in your life. Um, because these verses, they cover, they just cover so much, and it'll be really helpful to narrow it down and apply it on a heart level in a specific way that's sustainable. So you don't just get hit with a fire hose as we look at all of these wonderful qualities in Titus 2 without it actually bearing fruit in your life. Um, and as you do that, remember both what Christ has done, like Janet said, to make you a new creation um, who can walk in newness of life, but also remember the responsibility he's given us as his people to run hard after um, holiness of life by his grace. So let's pray and we'll look at Titus. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. You are high and lifted up and you are also a God who dwells with the humble and the lowly and the contrite in heart. Lord, I pray 
that you would help us right now to be humble, to be humble in our hearts, Lord. Help us to put aside distractions and worries and concerns, the things that we need to do the rest of this day. And Lord, right now, just to humble ourselves before you, Lord, our maker, our, the savior of all who put their faith and trust in you, who turn to you in repentance and faith. And Lord, incline our hearts to learn from you. We want to be conformed to the image of your son. So please let your word have its perfect work in us. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. Okay, so go ahead and open up your Bible to the book of Titus. Um, now Titus 2, 3 through 5, that's our passage for today. This is a unique passage. It addresses women in the church. It's the only place in scripture that tells us specifically what women's ministry must include. And that is why it's at the core of women's ministry at Grace Bible Church. So we're gonna start with putting ourselves in context. What is going on in this letter? Well, in Titus, Paul was addressing a problem. The churches in Crete were out of order and that's why Titus was there. The churches needed to be put in order and they needed elders to help bring that about. And in chapter one, Paul described a problem in the churches. There were rebellious men who said they knew God, but they denied him by their actions and they were having an influence. Households were being thrown into confusion because these men were teaching things they should not teach. There was unsound teaching and ungodly living and it resulted in upheaval. So in chapter two, verse one, Paul wrote to Titus, but as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. See, unsound teaching must be met with sound teaching, sound, healthy doctrine. And the church must be instructed how to live in light of that sound doctrine. And that's what follows in chapter two for men, for women, even for slaves, for everyone in the church, because when there are people who say they know God, but they deny him by how they live, it's all the more essential that real believers bear the fruit of God's transforming grace in their lives. So Paul describes God's grace beginning in chapter two, verse 11. He writes, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us, that is, to set us free from every lawless deed, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. What we see here is that grace saves us and instructs us to live out what Christ has accomplished for us. Isn't it helpful to know that it's God's grace that instructs us? He doesn't tell us how to live in order to gain his favor. Rather, because he has purchased us by his grace, he instructs us how to live as his redeemed people. 
And Grace's instructions include both what to put off, we could say, verse 12 uses the word deny, these are the things that we must stop doing, and also what to put on, it tells us how we should live. Grace instructs us to put on sensible, righteous, godly living, and Titus 2 verses 3 through 5 spells out in detail what that includes in the life of believing women. But in order to put on godly living, we must also deny what Paul calls ungodliness and worldly desires. I'm going to give you some definitions that you already have in your homework. Ungodliness can be an overt lack of reverence for God, but it can also take a subtler form. Jerry Bridges describes it as living our lives with little or no thought of God, of his will, of his glory, or of our dependence on him. Clearly, we can't grow in godliness if we rarely even think about God or if we don't see our need for him in the details of our lives. And when Paul says worldly desires, he's talking about not only desires which are overtly sinful, but also being overly focused on or attached to temporal things. And it's not difficult to see how this will keep us from growing in godliness as well. A focus on worldly, temporal things constantly wars against any effort we make to renew our minds and our affections with truth. And so in the homework, as you consider how you can grow as a Titus II woman, you'll have the opportunity to think about any ungodliness and worldly desires that you need to deny or put off in order to grow as a Titus II woman. So let's read Titus 2, 3 through 5. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. We see that grace-directed living is necessary for grace-directed relationships. And both of these are essential for a healthy, God-glorifying church. Now near the bottom of page one on your outline, you can see the summary of our passage. The word of God is honored through gospel-transformed older women training gospel-transformed younger women. As we go through these verses, we'll talk about not only what each one of these qualities means, um, but also why and how we live these out. And we find the why at the end of verse 5, where it says, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. God's word was being dishonored in Crete. Some were neglecting and even rejecting the authority of God's word. They were paying attention to myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth and foolish controversies. Rather than submitting themselves to God's word, they defiled their minds and their consciences, living in impurity and disobedience. But we get to protect his word from dishonor through our obedience. Now to understand how we can be tied as two women, we will look at each of how e we will look at how each of these qualities flows from discipline one. In Wellspring and at Grace Bible Church, we use the phrase discipline one and shepherd your heart a lot. 
But we don't want this just to be Grace Bible Church jargon and assume that because we say these words that everyone understands what they mean. Discipline one and shepherding your heart mean that you're using God's word to direct your life, that you're placing your life under the authority of God's word. See, your heart is you. Like Janet said, it's your inner person. It's not just a part of you. It's not just your emotions, but rather it's who you really are inwardly. And it's the source of everything that comes out of you. It's the source of your thoughts, your emotions, your will, your words. Everything flows from your heart, even your actions and your reactions. All of it comes from inside of you. So any change in how we live has to begin with our heart. And left to itself, our heart isn't trustworthy. It's not stable, it isn't wise, and it was not designed to be its own authority. And so we must submit our heart to God's word. God's word is the trustworthy, unchanging, wise revelation of God's authority over us. So shepherding your heart, as Smed has said, is using God's word to tell your mind what to think and to tell your emotions what to feel and your will what to want and your mouth what to say. It's using God's word to direct everything going on inside of you so that everything that comes out is glorifying to God in accordance with God's word. That is the path for growing in godliness. And we equip ourselves to do that day by day by drawing near to God in his word and in prayer, humbly submitting ourselves to him in loving and trusting obedience. That's what it means to shepherd your heart. It includes both our time alone with God in his word and prayer, as well as actively directing our hearts and everything that comes out of us to be directed by God's word. Heart shepherding is where we take what we learn and put it into practice. It's applying truth to produce sanctification in our lives. And so as we go through these verses, we'll talk about how we can shepherd our heart to be this kind of woman by God's grace. So look at Roman numeral one, what older trans women transformed by the gospel must be. So Paul begins this passage um, with older women. Older women most likely refer to those who are at least 50 or 60, women whose children are grown when the demands of our household are not as great. He tells us who we must be, and he tells us what we must do. So if you ever want to know God's will for your life, well, here it is. This is God's will for us. God has designed this season for our lives for a very specific purpose. It's not a time to step back. It's not a time to be focused on ourselves. Instead, God instructs us to be godly women who purposefully invest in helping younger women who are in our own local church live out the work of God's grace in their lives. And it has an implication for all women. Older is a relative term. Everyone is older than someone. And while it's true that most older women have more opportunity for this because of their season of life, all of us can do this to some degree with those who are younger, maybe in age or maybe younger in their faith. And all of us also need to be teachable younger women, no matter our age, as we learn from other women and let them spur us on in our walk with the Lord. We build these relationships in many different ways in the church. It could be women with whom we serve or in our small group. It could be here in Wellspring. We need to actively cultivate these relationships. We also have a mentoring ministry for women here at Grace Bible Church 
there are times when we might benefit from a more formalized relationship with an older or a younger woman. And you can find out more about that ministry from Chris Evans. Her email address is at the end of the outline, and there are also applications available on the Wellspring table. So with such an important ministry, what kind of women must we be? Well, the character of a gospel-transformed older woman is described in four ways. She is reverent in her behavior. She is not a malicious gossip. She is not enslaved to much wine, and she teaches what is good. These qualities are necessary for integrity in our ministry with younger women. That doesn't mean that we are perfect or that we have arrived, but it does mean that we're on a consistent path of shepherding our own hearts to be women who live obediently under the grace of God and that we're growing in that and maturing in our faith so that we can help younger women grow too. Um, now number one on the outline is reverent in behavior. The word reverent is related to the idea of being suitable for the temple. Now in Leviticus 20, there's a helpful description of reverence. God warned his people against turning to mediums and spiritists and playing the harlot after them. And then he says in verses 7 and 8, You shall consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for, the Lord, for I am the Lord your God. You shall keep my statutes and practice them. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. We see here that because, because God set his people apart for himself, his people were to set themselves apart for holiness and obedience. As followers of Christ, we should seek to do all things with an attitude of worship, to set apart every part of our lives for God. Reverence is not a mystical spirituality. God condemns that. It's not living by impressions of what we think God might be saying to us apart from his word. Omri talked about that in Equipping Hour on Sunday. Rather, true reverence loves to hear from God in his word. Our time with God in his word is the foundation for reverence. Psalm 119.38 says, Establish your word to your servant as that which produces reverence for you. God's word is established to us as we humble ourselves under the whole counsel of God, not just picking and choosing our favorite passages. And so we feed our hearts with God's word and fix our minds on the things of the Lord, yielding ourselves to him in obedience and trust, doing all things as an act of worship to him. Not just in our quiet time, not just when we're at church, but always, and especially when nobody's watching. This is God's call on all of his people. We are all to deny ungodliness and live lives of worshipful obedience. And older women are to be exemplary in this so that we can encourage other women to worshipfully follow Christ in all that they do. Now, number two on the outline is not malicious gossips. The Greek word for malicious gossips is translated as slanderers in the ESV, and it's used 34 times in the New Testament for the devil the one who accuses and slanders us before God. Slander is literally diabolical. When we gossip and slander, we are speaking against others. 
we are representing them in a negative light with the intent that others think less of them and more of ourselves. We can be guilty of slander in what we say, post, share, as well as in what we listen to or even read. Turn to James 4. In James chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, James helps us to see the heart issues behind slander. James writes, Do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you who judge your neighbor? See, speaking against one another reveals pride in the heart, a heart that has exalted itself not only above others, but even above God and his word. It reflects a heart that is judging others rather than humbly acknowledging that God alone is the judge of all. And so as grace instructs us to put off this ungodliness, we need to put on an attitude of humility toward others. When we understand that God is the only rightful judge and the only reason we do not need to fear his judgment is because of the mercy he extends to us through the gospel, then our words will reflect that. They will be gracious and merciful. We'll seek to highlight evidences of God's grace in others rather than their weaknesses or sin. Scripture itself sets the example for us in this. When you read Hebrews 11, the Hall of Faith chapter, many people are commended for their faith whose lives were not completely exemplary. Nonetheless, how kind of the Lord to remember them for their faith in that chapter. Slander is sin, regardless of who is doing it, but older women must be especially careful. It's absolutely necessary for the ministry God has given us with younger women. Well, that brings us to number three on the outline, not enslaved to much wine. This means that we must not be mastered by alcohol. Now, God's word does not categorically forbid wine, but in multiple places, drunkenness is condemned. The emphasis here in Titus 2 is on the word enslaved. It's a term of bondage. It could be wine. Clearly, wine was a problem with the women in the churches on Crete, and still today, many turn to alcohol as an escape. The reality, however, is that alcohol enslaves those who hope to escape through it. And alcohol is not the only thing that enslaves when we use it as a means of escape or comfort. Food, all kinds of electronics distractions, exercise, really the list just is endless. We're in danger of bondage if we turn to anything but the Lord to help us cope. Many of these things can be enjoyed with self-control and thankfulness as good gifts from God, but God himself is the believer's comfort. He is our refuge, and true joy is found in him alone. Ephesians 5, 18 through 20 shows us this contrast. Go ahead and turn there. In Ephesians 5, 
Ephesians 5.18, Paul writes, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation. But here's what we're to do instead. Be filled with the Spirit. That means to live continually under the influence of the Spirit by letting God's Word control you. And then he describes what that looks like in verse 19. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. Always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God. And that is what happens when we do shepherd our heart with God's word. God's word reminds us that in the gospel we have all things in Christ. Here's what's not true. It is not true that the gospel gives us salvation, but that we have to look elsewhere for what we need to deal with life. That's not true at all. 2 Peter 1.3 tells us that God has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him. The great marvel of the gospel is that, that, is that God gives us himself, and his word promises that his nearness is our good. He never leaves us nor forsakes us. And yet finding our comfort in him is something that we have to learn and practice it requires walking by faith and not by sight, walking by truth, not by emotion, trusting his purposes for us in trials and accepting comfort in knowing and believing the promises of God rather than fleshly comforts that temporarily distract us from troubles. We trust God's help for us by drawing near to him and obeying him. Trusting the Lord through difficulties brings maturity and hope but relying on anything else leads to idolatry. We cannot help other women discover all they need in Christ if we ourselves aren't convinced that he is everything we need. All right, so far we have seen that a reverent woman shepherds her heart away from malicious gossip um, and away from slavery to alcohol or to anything in order to find her comfort and her peace in Jesus Christ himself. Finally, number four, older women are to teach what is good, what is beneficial. We must teach the things that are pleasing to God. Now, to teach doesn't imply that every woman has a formal platform for teaching, but it does mean that we are to use every opportunity that we do have to teach what is good, specifically to help women obey what we see here in Titus 2. Now, to feel the weight of this, remember the context. In Titus 1, 10 and 11, we find that ungodly false teachers were upsetting whole families in the church. That is why Titus and the elders are exhorted throughout this book to be godly and to exhort in sound doctrine. But they're not the only ones. Older women, too, must teach what is good through our example and our words. As women, we have a frontline influence on the families and households of our church. And so we must be diligent to be a good and beneficial influence to teach women to obey these verses and not be blown about. We are equipped to do this through our own walk with God and his word, as well as through the many means of grace that come through life in the body of Christ. Well, that brings us then to Roman numeral two on the outline, what transformed older women must train the younger women to be. Verse four begins, so that they, the older women, may encourage the young women. 
this is God's calling for older women. Elders certainly have a shepherding and leadership role in women's lives, but as women, we have a special privilege of helping younger women. The word encourage, also translated as train or instruct, is related to the word sensible that's used throughout the book of Titus. The Legacy Standard Bible helps us to see this when it says, so that they may instruct the young women in sensibility. Sensibility carries the idea of a sound mind. Older women are to teach younger women to behave wisely and properly. We're to help younger women use sound and self-controlled thinking to guide every part of their lives. And to do this, we need relationships with women who are in different seasons of life. Um, older women need to be available and need to look for ways to encourage younger women. And younger women need to invite older women into their lives. You need to seek out their wisdom. When we have a life question, the first place to turn doesn't have to be the internet. You know, the internet is helpful for a lot of things, but it can't replace the biblical perspective that you get from a woman in your own church family who earnestly follows Jesus. This is a woman with whom you can have a personal relationship, and that just can't be said about the vast majority of experts you find online. Titus 2 says you need older women in your own church to teach and encourage you. This honors God's word. It glorifies God when believing women help one another grow in Christ-likeness. So let's read Titus 2, 4, and 5 again and observe what the older women are to teach the younger women. So older women need to be everything we've seen in verse 3 so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Now this is addressing all women. Whether or not we are women, I'm sorry, we're all women, whether or not we are married, and whether or not we have children. The list begins by addressing these common household relationships because it's important that we understand God's design for them. But in the book of Titus, Paul is concerned with setting the whole church in order. And God builds the church for people from all seasons of life. So there are no spectators here. These verses speak to all of us. Now, number one is to love her husband. Now, in the Greek, it's literally to be a husband lover. It describes who a woman is. It's not just what she does. And these verses tell us that this is a love which must be taught. It's not natural and it's not intuitive. But an older woman who has been modeling her love for her husband after God's love for her in Jesus Christ is well-suited to help a younger woman learn to love her own husband. So how can we imitate God's love for us in our love for our husband? Well, Psalm 103 describes God's love like this, beginning in verse 10. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Just as a father has compassion on his children, 
So the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. What love is this? The mercy in not dealing with us according to our sins. God's love is immeasurably great, full of grace, forgiveness, compassion. He sent his son to the cross to remove all the hostility, to give us peace with himself. Because of Christ's work on the cross, we don't have to earn God's affection. So don't make your husband earn your affection. God does not wait until we are worthy to love, so lavish your husband with unconditional love. God loves us when we're stubborn and disobedient, so love your husband even when you feel let down. All that you cherish about God's love for you, let your husband cherish that kind of love as he receives it from you. Be a good friend to your husband. Study him. Listen to him and encourage him. Learn how to be a suitable helper to your own husband. And don't compare him with others. Loving your husband is the first in the list of good things that older women are to teach younger women. After your walk with the Lord, your husband is to be first in your affections and your priorities. We need to give our best to our husband, especially when children have so many immediate needs. We need to keep a tender heart for our husband and love him well. We're never off duty. Our tone, our demeanor, our thoughts, our words, all should express affection for him. If you're not married, you can be a husband lover in the sense that you understand how God values marriage so you can encourage your married friends to love their husbands well. And you need to love the people God has placed around you. This is a love that puts God's work in us on display. It points to him. It looks different outside of marriage, but the heart of selflessness is the same. This is not a love that you wake up in the morning naturally ready to give. Our natural bent is to love ourselves. But when we draw near to God in his word, he renews and strengthens us to love like he loves. Older women, this is how you get to encourage younger women. Next, older women are to encourage young women to love their children or to be children lovers. And although the most obvious application is to mothers, we all have the responsibility and the privilege to love children and to cherish them. There are children around all of us, especially here at Grace Bible Church, whom we can love. And as with loving our husbands, this is a love that must be taught. And it's modeled after God's love for us, and it's a priority right after loving our husband. Now, Matthew Henry explains it like this. This is paraphrased slightly, but you have the original quote in your notes. Older women are to teach young women to love their children, not with a natural affection only, but with a spiritual one, a love springing from a holy, sanctified heart and regulated by the word. Once again, that's why we ourselves need to be in God's word. And then he continues, not a fond, foolish love where you're indulging them in evil or neglecting due reproof and correction where necessary, but with biblical love, teaching them the Christian faith, including God's word, God's character, and the gospel, forming their life and manners aright, taking care of their souls as well as their bodies, of their spiritual welfare, 
as well as of their temporal, and taking care of the former chiefly and in the first place. That is to say, prioritizing the care of their souls. We might need to ask ourselves, can our children see that this is our priority from how we schedule our time? If they can't, we might need to reevaluate. Now to this description, let's add that this needs to be done with patience, kindness, firmness, not being surprised or annoyed that children need parenting, but instead faithfully serving the Lord with thankfulness for the privilege of teaching them about our Savior and preparing them for life. So how can we possibly love like this? As always, it begins with shepherding our own hearts with God's word and the gospel. We need to fix our own hearts on God's love for us. One of the ways God demonstrates his love for us is by allowing us to be his children. 1 John 3, 1 says, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called children of God. We were spiritually dead, but God redeemed us out of the slave market of sin and adopted us as his own beloved children. So our love for our children is a reflection of our Heavenly Father's love for us. We have a Heavenly Father who lovingly bears with us as his children. He patiently and tenderly labors to conform us to the image of his Son. And it's in submitting to his tender care for us that we find grace to tenderly love the children in our lives. Our love gives them a taste of God's love. Well, that brings us to number three, sensible. Okay, well, as we touched on earlier, sensibility deals primarily with the mind or with our thought life. It means not running for the edges or the extremes in our thinking but rather to strive for reserved and balanced thinking that's not easily moved off center. It's giving each situation its proper weight, not too little and not too much. It's being self-controlled with our thoughts and our emotions. It's submitting our thoughts to God's thoughts as he's revealed them in his word. The command to be sensible is all over the book of Titus. This was a pervasive problem in the churches on Crete. See, when we're saved, our lives change in many ways. Our actions, our attitudes, our priorities, and our thoughts must change as well. God's word has a lot to say about how offensive our thoughts can be to him. In Genesis 6, 5, right before God instructed Noah to build the ark, it says that the Lord saw that every intent of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. In Isaiah 55, 7, the unrighteous man is exhorted to forsake his thoughts. And in Isaiah 65, 2, God says, I have spread out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in the way which is not good, following their own thoughts. See, God knows what we think. And our thoughts need sanctification as much as our actions and words. So how do we do that? We shepherd our hearts. See, in our mixed condition, our hearts are still easily deceived and can easily lead us away from being sensible into unbalanced thinking that runs to the edges, that's driven by emotion rather than trust in God. 
But God has given us a spirit of a sound mind. We can use self-control in our thinking. By his grace, we can renew our minds with God's word, with truth, and be sensible viewing all of our circumstances through the lens of God's word. And sensibility protects God's word from dishonor because we're giving God's word its proper authority in how we think. Well, that brings us to number four, pure. Pure means clean, spotless, means to be morally pure in all ways. Titus 1.15 says, To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. So we see here that when Paul talks about purity, he has our mind and our conscience in view as well. It's an inward purity that directs all of our outward choices. It has the idea of being unpolluted. We need to cultivate unpolluted, pure affections for the Lord, rejecting and turning away from everything that competes for our affections, which rightly belong only to him. And when our affections for him are pure, then the overflow of that will be purity in our thoughts and desires, in our words and actions, in our clothing, and in our relationships. It will guide what we allow into our eyes and ears but it's a daily fight. The residual depravity in our own heart requires constant vigilance against impurity. And so we really need to ask ourselves, why would we want to introduce additional temptations to impurity through what we let into our minds? Instead, we should be running after purity by eagerly anticipating Christ's return. 1 John 3, 2 and 3 says, Beloved, Now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when Jesus appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him, this hope of seeing Jesus and being like him, purifies himself just as he is pure. See, the confidence that we will see him one day makes us want to purify ourselves. It's gospel promises like this that we use to shepherd our hearts. We want them to be like wallpaper in our mind, like the background music that goes on in our heads so that our pursuit of purity points to our Savior's purity and our anticipation of seeing him face to face. Well, next we have number five, workers at home. Now, for most of us, our experience with work is primarily with a job, or with school where there's somebody else telling us what to do and holding us accountable and we get a paycheck or we get grades and um, we know what somebody else thinks about our work because they're evaluating us. But being a worker at home is different. There is very little material reward or accountability, but that does not mean it's not important. This is work that is done out of love and obedience to our savior. It's an act of worship to God. Being a worker at home means making a priority of the work and the relationships where we live. Older women must be an example to the younger of how to keep a priority of being a worker at home. And it's no more optional than any of the other qualities in this passage, no matter our age or stage of life. God's work for us in our home has purpose in every season of life, from seasons when we live alone 
to those that involve households that are busy with children and everything in between. And God's word is dishonored if we neglect this. Now we've already talked about some household relationships, but all household relationships are a priority in this work. Honoring others above ourselves, being the aroma of Christ, and cultivating conversations that make much of our Lord. Whether it's people you live with, like your immediate family, or roommates, or people who visit your home. Working in our home allows our home to be useful in ministering to others. Another priority in this work is serving and managing our homes to help them run smoothly. Often, this might include meeting needs, preparing meals, washing clothes, cleaning. It might be helpful to organize space and time so that life goes more smoothly for those in our home. For example, it might be helpful to get everyone's clothes ready for church the night before or have a dinner plan on small group night. But it's not enough to just be at home. We need to fight hard against laziness and misplaced priorities. In some seasons, the work of the home is so demanding that there is very little time and energy left over for anything else, even good things. But in other seasons, the demands are lighter and we have more opportunity to serve others. There are also seasons when it's appropriate for a woman to not only be a worker at home, but also to be in the workplace, to be employed in some way. But we need to give thoughtful consideration to how we can be faithful as workers at home, even when we are also working outside of our home. If you're married, you need to be praying and talking with your husband to have wisdom and unity about these decisions, protecting your role as a worker at home and as an older woman in the church. Being a worker at home, embracing and valuing this role takes heart shepherding as much as any of the qualities in Titus 2, 3 through 5. If we are not denying worldliness in our thinking like grace instructs us to do, then we will likely resent this role. Even if we understand the good in being a worker at home, we can easily fall prey to discontentment or laziness. And so again, renewing our mind throughout each day with the truth of God's word is where the battle for faithful contentment in our service is won. When you find sin creeping in, repent. Agree with God that it's sin and that it's offensive to him and that Christ suffered and died to satisfy God's wrath against your sin. And thank him that he would use this rule to show you your sin so that you can repent and grow in Christ-likeness. Believer, you're not a slave to sin. And being a worker in our home is a wonderful opportunity for offering ourselves to God as a living sacrifice. Ephesians 2.10 tells us that God is the one who prepared the work he has for us. He is the one we're serving. And he is the one who supplies his abundant grace to be a joyful, diligent worker in your home. Well, number six is kind. Older women are to instruct younger women to be kind. This is a kindness or a goodness that comes from the heart and then overflows into words and actions that benefit others. It's an eagerness to do good to others, showing kindness with our words, our tone, even our facial expressions. You know, it's interesting that this comes right after being a worker at home. Sadly, our homes are often the place where we are careless about being kind. 
when we're not kind, it reveals something about our heart. It reveals what we truly value in that moment. Maybe convenience or respect, our schedule, might be something really good. But when those things become idols in our hearts, we're sinning against the Lord and we need to repent. Not only of our unkind words or selfish actions, but most importantly, we repent of loving anything so much that we're willing to sin against our Savior by being unkind to others. And so again, we shepherd our hearts with the gospel where we behold the kindness of God. Turn to Titus 3. Beginning in verse 3, Paul writes, For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. Not on the basis of deeds which we've done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. See, God responded to our foolishness and our disobedience with kindness that is completely undeserved. It's his kindness that enables us to be kind even when others are not. Kindness is not a reaction to those around us, but it is a reflection of our Heavenly Father. And so each day, go to his word, remind yourself of his kindness to you in the gospel, and then reflect his kindness in how you treat others. All right, finally, number seven, being subject to their own husbands. Being subject means to submit, to voluntarily, without resentment, line ourselves up under the authority that God has ordained for us, in this case, our husband. Now, all of us, married or not, need to cultivate a heart that trusts God as we submit to other authorities God has placed in our lives, whether in our home, church, school, workplace, or government. But here, we're talking specifically about a wife's submission to her husband. So turn to Ephesians 5. We're going to let this passage help us better understand God's design for submission. This passage is immensely helpful because it shows us that roles in marriage, the husband is the head of the wife and the wife submitting to her husband, are pointing to something much greater, something that is eternal. Now verse 22 begins, wives be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now notice that phrase, as to the Lord. The Lord is our master. He is the one we trust as we submit to our husband. For that reason, we submit lovingly and joyfully regardless of our husband's spiritual condition or leadership. We do it out of obedience to Jesus. And verse 23 continues, For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. So the roles of both the husband and the wife are designed to paint a picture of Christ and his bride, the church. The husband's role gives a picture of Christ's self-giving leadership and care for the church, and a wife's submission to her husband paints a picture for the world to see the church's love and submission towards Jesus. And how does the church do that? 
We as a church are being progressively sanctified to submit to Jesus with wholehearted trust and joy. The church submits to Jesus in everything, not selectively, not with resentment or complaining, but with gratitude. That's what we get to communicate through our submission to our husband. It's not that our husband is perfect like Jesus, but rather submitting to our husband aims to show the same joy and love that the church shows in her submission to Jesus. So let's continue then with verse 25. It says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Ladies, I want to encourage you when you read these verses, don't measure your husband and think about where he falls short, but instead look at him with mercy. It should make us tremble to think about the call that God has put on him to love us like Christ loves the church. What a standard. That should make us want to do everything we can to make his role as easy as possible as we encourage and follow his leadership. Paul then in verses 28 through 30 gives more description of the husband's role. And then jumping to verse 31, we find, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. See, in the midst of teaching about marriage, Paul turns again and again to Christ and the church. This is the great reality to which marriage points. In marriage, two become one. There is a unity and a oneness that gives the world a picture of a much greater union of Christ and the church. And that has practical implications. In marriage, the goal is not for one or the other to get their own way, but the goal is to find unity in seeking to glorify the Lord together. Both the husband and the wife strive for that unity as they exercise their God-given roles. As a wife, we approach that with a submissive attitude, using self-control and patience as we listen and seek to understand our husband's perspective. As we share insights where it might help our husband lead our family in honoring the Lord, and we do that with respect, and as we support his leadership, we need to be thoughtful about the timing of conversations, and we need to be humble and ready to follow, even when our preferences are different than our husband's. Certainly, this is not always easy. Marriage is the union of one sinner to another sinner. Husbands are not always good leaders any more than we are always good followers. If our husband wants us to sin, we have to humbly and respectfully decline. If there is abuse, we need to seek help from others in the church to discern a path of safety and wisdom while we remain faithful to our marriage vows. But in all of this, the aim is unity, to show the beautiful union of Christ and his church. Finally, verse 33 says, nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. Now, the word respects helps us to see that this submission is not just a matter of what we say and do. It's a matter of the heart. It's choosing on a heart level to respect our husband because of the role that the Lord has sovereignly given him in our lives 
we need to submit respectfully, not with a cold shoulder or pouting or irritation, not with self-righteousness or contentiousness or keeping a record of wrongs, but with genuine respect and grace in our attitude and our tone and our expression. Ephesians 5 shows us that the whole point of marriage is to point to something much, much greater than ourselves. We have the inestimable privilege of relating to our husband in a way that shows the world how the church relates to Jesus. Understanding this guards us from distorted worldly views of marriage. Submission in marriage is not demeaning. It is not an insult. It is not a waste of your abilities or your intelligence. It is a privilege. Submission was God's design from the beginning before sin ever entered the world. It is not related to our value or our ability or our intelligence at all. Women have spiritual equality with men, but God gives us different roles to display something about himself. We need look no further than the relationship between Jesus and the Father to see the beauty of submission. Now we might be tempted to think that if our husband was God, it would be easy to submit. But Jesus submitted to his father, even when that meant submitting himself to evil men to the point of death on a cross. There would be no salvation without his submission. Submission is an expression of love. It's a heart disposition based on trust in the Lord, a purposeful decision to line ourselves up under our husband's leadership as the best posture for us to help him, to do him good, to be an excellent wife who displays the love and devotion of the church to her Savior. It is a hard attitude which we must feed daily by drawing near to God in his word. See, in the word we see God's trustworthiness, and so we can entrust ourselves to him as we submit to our husband. And we see God's forgiveness, and so we can forgive. And we see the good he has for us in trials, even the trials of marriage, so that we can persevere with joy and endurance. We are reminded of our own sinfulness and unworthiness before the Lord so we can extend grace to our husbands and give thanks to God. And as with all of these qualities, we need godly older women to help us and teach us to submit in a manner pleasing to the Lord. So finally, Roman numeral three, what happens when transformed women are all they should be? Well, Titus 2, 3 through 5 has painted for us a God-inspired picture of gospel-transformed women helping one another live Christ-exalting lives. Throughout the lesson, we've pointed to God's purpose for this, that the word of God would not be dishonored. And we can think of this like concentric circles, like throwing a pebble into a pond and the ripples that come out from it. The very center is the impact that God's word has on our own hearts so that we can shepherd our hearts all day long, beginning in our homes, and then that expands into our church, where as women, we help one another grow as godly women. And as we do that, God's word is honored, the church is strengthened, and God is glorified. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that it's living and active, that it's powerful. Lord, we want you to have your way in our hearts and in our lives. I pray, Father, as we leave now to go and talk in our discussion groups, would you help us to remember the things that you want us to remember, to apply the specific truths in tangible ways that will better help our lives display your work in us. In Jesus' name, amen.